Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual, so when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say, 25 years being really distracted, overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, And apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get. Folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. 
BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash persia. Ho, ho, hello, everybody, and happy Alda to everyone from last weekend. Welcome to the first annual History of Persia holiday special. This is also briefly taking the place of a regular episode because a tour of the Persian Empire is a massive project that I did not realize I had scheduled for Christmas Eve. That episode will come out next week, and the first week of the new year will resume something that resembles a normal schedule, I think. I've sort of stumbled into releasing this episode alongside a couple of actual holidays. Today is Christmas Eve, December 24th, 2019, for those who find it later. And this past weekend had the traditional Persian winter solstice festival called Yalda, or more formally, Shaba Yalda, or somewhat less often, Shabachella. I had absolutely no intention of releasing this episode in relation with any actual Persian holidays, even though it turns out that it is rather appropriate. My annual special actually isn't going to follow a normal pattern at all. Each calendar year, I'm going to produce one episode for a holiday. Some will come into play this time of year, like Yalda, Christmas, Hanukkah, Epiphany. Many, though, will come at different points throughout the calendar, like Nowruz. So, long-term listeners, you can be on the lookout for those in the future. I could have, at the last minute, morphed this into a Yalda episode, but there's actually not much evidence for an Achaemenid winter holiday. This year, I was actually planning to tie this into Thanksgiving, I'm also ridiculously late because I got ridiculously busy and didn't have a chance to write and record this little bonus. Sometimes these specials will be able to tie more directly into holidays with ancient roots. Other times, like this first one, I'm just going to use it as an excuse to talk about an interesting topic. So what's that topic, and what does it have to do with the American celebration of Thanksgiving? Well, it's the same thing that it has to do with Yalda. It's food, of course. Both Thanksgiving and Yalda are homey holidays with a host of traditional foods served at a family dinner. I had actually considered making this a Patreon bonus topic, but ancient Persian food is the very first topic one of you listening out there ever requested that I cover, and I wanted to honor that request by putting this out in front of the paywall as a special event. So let's dig in. There's actually not a ton to say about ancient Persian food. We sadly don't have any primary Achaemenid records, and are mostly dependent on ration lists detailing what kind of produce and livestock was circulating in the Persian Empire. Fortunately, though, we do have a few Greek records, and the cuisine of Iran hasn't changed too much in the last 2,500 years. 
and it changed even less before about 1300 with the Mongol conquest and then again in 1500 with the introduction of the Colombian exchange and New World agriculture into Old World diets. Some things, like kufta and kebab, only appear in the Islamic period, but the actual components were mostly the same ones that the Achaemenids used. The biggest absentee, though, has to be rice, which was only around as a luxury in the late Achaemenid period, not introduced widely until the Parthian period, and not common until the Mongol conquests of the 13th century CE. Of course, rice is a staple of modern Iranian food, and with it come a variety of cooking styles, soups, and stews that are served alongside. But all of that would have been mostly unknown for most of Iran's history. As a result of scant documentation, this episode might be the extent of my culinary coverage on this podcast for a long time. Unlike medieval Europe, which we still have recipes from, and the Greeks and Romans who wrote ethnographies, we just don't have quite as much information about day-to-day -day life in the Persian world. It's not the kind of thing anybody needed to be told about in an official document or an inscription, so it wasn't talked about in written records. Fortunately, though, archaeology and listed quantities of foodstuffs provide enough information for me to say something. It could seem obvious, but I might as well point out that the Achaemenid and pre-Achaemenid periods in Iran would have been the most different from modern Iranian cuisine. The first Persian Empire was huge, spanning from North Africa to South Asia and traded across that whole distance and beyond, bringing African cumin and Indian chickens in at either extreme and trading even further afield for Greek wines and other foreign products. However, their trade paled in comparison to the trade routes that developed in the Parthian and Sassanid periods. The Parthians became the first Iranian empire to make contact with China and served as the primary middlemen between Roman and Chinese luxury goods traveling across Asia. Despite being a smaller empire, the Parthian empire saw traffic from products between the Roman Atlantic and the Chinese Pacific coasts and everywhere between. They were also in power after India started developing powerful empires and kingdoms of its own to act as trade partners. Because of their expanded horizons, their options, especially for spices, expanded greatly. So far, I've mostly talked about what we don't know. So what do we know? I'm going to let the old school food pyramid be our guide and go through the major food groups of the Persian Empire. So let's start with the bottom up. Grains. They formed the bulk of the ancient Persian diet, as they did for all ancient societies, and as they should, in theory, do today. Like I said before, the primary grain of modern Iran is rice, but that was not an option for the early Persians. Instead, they relied on breads, largely flatbreads, similar to Greek pitas or Indian naan. That's not to rule out leavened breads like we normally eat in the US and Western Europe today. The Persians certainly had those as well, but they would have been something of a luxury or a treat. Flatbread takes less time to prepare because it doesn't need time to rise. Just to lay out the dough and bake it, you're good to go. So more time-consuming breads would be served just less frequently. Wheat was the preferred grain to make flour and bread, and the northern Zagros Mountains in western Iran are a candidate that competes with eastern Anatolia for the original home of domesticated emmer, an early predecessor to domestic wheat. During the Achaemenid period, huge tracts of land in Iran and Mesopotamia were divvied out and developed as farming estates for the Persian nobility to increase grain production. That said, wheat is a pretty finicky crop, and plants that are hard to grow tend to be more expensive. Barley, a hardier and sturdier grain, was slightly more common and cheaper as an alternative to wheat. 
rye filled a similar niche, but was less common than barley. Barley grains are also better suited to being roasted or boiled rather than baked, and can be used for cooking in a wider variety of dishes than just wheat flour. These basic grains provided most of the calories in a standard ancient diet. In fact, the Persepolis Archive tablets generally record that flour was used as payment rather than money or just straight wheat because bread was so important. The flatbreads were actually also one of the primary utensils in a Persian dinner. According to Paulinus, the primary utensils were a piece of bread and a knife, though we also, of course, have evidence of spoons at least as serving utensils. Forks, however, would not come into play until the Parthian or Sassanid periods much later. Also according to Paulianus, the great kings had barley breads at their feasts, probably indicating some kind of specialty breads made from cheaper ingredients. Paulianus is actually one of the more interesting sources for Persian food choices. In his stratagems, he lists all of the foods at a great king's feasts and attributes it to an inscription on a column supposedly in the palace at Persepolis. Similar lists have been found in Assyrian precedents, so that list is probably a fairly accurate report. And of course, all of these grains were used for brewing beer. This was not usually the thin and hoppy drink that we're familiar with today. Instead, ancient beer was more akin to liquid bread or gruel. It's very thick and often still had sediment floating around from the brewing process. The Sumerians, thousands of years before the Achaemenids, invented some of the first drinking straws from reeds to filter out the biggest pieces of grain that sometimes poured out with their beer. Moving on, the second most common category in the Achaemenid diet was vegetables, followed closely by fruits. Cress leaves as garnish or leafy salads, garlic, candied pickled and salted capers, onions, candied turnips, radishes both cooked and pickled, pickled beets, celery, and olives. All of these make appearances in records of Achaemenid food. We don't have a clear picture of how most of that was prepared, aside from the ones which I have already specified, which are reported by Polyanus. Some have obvious choices. Cress is usually just raw. Onions are often added as an ingredient, but can be roasted on their own. Celery is another that can just be raw. And olives were imported from the Mediterranean, either whole or as oil. In all likelihood, many of these veggies were combined with other foods to craft more complex and specific dishes that haven't been recorded for us. There were probably forms of soup, salads, and roast or boiled dishes incorporating all of these vegetables and more. The ones listed by Polyanus can hardly be the- I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app, and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors. And Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. 
Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Only options available. Lentils and cabbage or other leafy greens were native to the region, and okra, or maybe even eggplant, could certainly have been imported among many other options from India. Green peas would absolutely have been present in Iran, which has some of the earliest evidence for pea domestication, thousands of years before the Persians ever arrived in the region. Fruits in general were a bit harder to grow, and less common in diets overall, but the Persians had tons of fruit options. Grapes and wine are famous in the Mediterranean today, but they were first domesticated in the southern steppe and Caucasus mountains, and spread directly to the Zagros and greater Iran from there. So not only were grapes eaten as fruit, but Proto-Elamite Iran was the birthplace of viticulture. And Achaemenid Iran, and actually Iran for hundreds of years until quite recently, was known for high-quality wines. Grapes could also be served plain or pressed into juice, either for wine or unfermented, and wine could be further processed into vinegar. As fruit, grapes could be dried into raisins, pressed into sweet jams, either in or on bread, or just eaten on their own or as part of a larger dish. Southern Iran, Mesopotamia, and most of the Western Empire also had an abundance of date palms, supplying dates and date wine by extension. They could be eaten raw, dried, candied, cooked, or crushed into spreads and jellies. And while not as suited to wines, figs could be used in many of the same ways as dates. Apples were noted at the Achaemenid court, pressed into sweet juice, but surely could also have been served raw, mashed, or roasted. Likewise, pomegranates could be served in many of the same ways, but pomegranate preserves are mentioned specifically by Polyinus. Pears are also added to the list by the geographer Strabo, probably prepared pretty similarly to apples. But other fruits must have been available. Watermelon and citron were certainly present, and oranges, pomelos, and lemons may have appeared as luxury goods from India in the royal court, though they were not widely traded. That brings us to meat. Vegetarians or vegans aside, meat forms a core part of modern Western cuisine. We eat it, or at least have canonical options, for every meal of the day. That was not the case for much of human history. Ancient people, most Persians included, were very conservative with their meat. Raising animals took time and money. It was not easy. Most livestock also served purposes in life before slaughter, and so there was an incentive to keep your limited supply of animals alive rather than eating them. Hunting was not a commoner's pastime. Chasing after wild antelope and deer was something for the royalty, nobility, or nomadic tribesmen, not settled farmers. In the Zagros Mountains and their foothills, poorer people probably had more access to meat than their counterparts in the lowlands. The mountains were herding country, where locals moved their flocks of sheep and goats in accordance with available pasture land. 
Goats, in fact, had been domesticated in the Zagros foothills a few thousand years earlier and featured heavily in Elamite iconography. Meanwhile, the ancestors of the Persians were domesticating sheep and horses up in the steppe that would eventually migrate and be traded down into Iran, and cattle were tamed both to the east and west in Mesopotamia and northern India. Those domesticated animals formed the core livestock of the Persians and their empire by the time of Cyrus. Almost all of them would be slaughtered for meat at some point in their existence and served as food. Small-time farmers would stretch out their animals as long as possible, while large herds of major landholders might see young males culled for lamb or veal to control their numbers. Roasting or boiling meat would probably have been the primary options available to most Persian cooks. Birds hold an interesting place in Achaemenid history. Geese, goslings, pigeons, and wild birds all appear in Polyanus's record, though probably weren't hugely common across the whole population's diet. However, a big feature of most modern cuisines was missing at the time of Cyrus and Darius. Chickens were not introduced in Iran until the late 5th or early 4th century as imports from India, and it wasn't until later in the 4th century BCE, possibly even after the fall of the Achaemenids, that Indian chicken became common in Iran and started spreading westward. Like most people outside the steppe, the Persians did not eat horses regularly, but they are mentioned as part of royal feasts. If they followed the usual practices for ritual sacrifice, that would be where horses figured in. In fact, most animal slaughter was part of ritual sacrifices and religious events. Horses, as a very valuable and prestigious animal, were not usually used for food, but in some of the grandest sacrifices, they too would be slaughtered and eaten. Apparently, this was associated with some royal feasts, as well as once a month by the Persian priests at Cyrus the Great's tomb. Of course, protein was not limited to meat. Most people wouldn't have had meat in their daily diet, so they needed other options. Primarily, that meant nuts. Pistachios and almonds were by far the most common options. Polyanus reports them roasted and mixed with spices into a stuffing. Chickpeas would also have been widely available as a source of protein, and of course fish are always neat. And of course fish are always eaten near rivers and coasts, but we don't hear anything specific about them. That just leaves dairy as our last food group. In a region that was home to goat domestication, dominated by a culture descended from sheep herders, and sandwiched between the two strains of domestic cattle, it should be no surprise that Persia had a bit of a thing for dairy. When it was available, they'd surely drink milk. But milk doesn't last very long without refrigeration. Cheese, yogurt, whey, and a dry form of yogurt called kashk were all dishes created to preserve dairy products and then perfected on their own. All of them would be made from the milk of the main three milking animals. Now, all of this was the product of a lack of refrigeration. So this seems like a good time to bring up ancient Persian refrigerators. And I know that sounds like a joke, but by the late Achaemenid period, a system of food storage called yakchals, literally meaning ice pits, had developed. These are tall conical structures over a subterranean pit, lined with heat-resistant stones and insulating materials. With a yakchal, the Persians could harvest ice in the winter or from the mountains and store it in the summer in the desert. In some instances, the water was brought directly to the yakchal in the warm months and froze there during the winter. The building allows cold air to pour in from entries at the base and descend into the pit of the yakchal, a huge open chamber. At the same time, the tall canonical shape of the building funnels heat upward and outside through openings at the top. 
all of this keeps the inside at the bottom much cooler than the outside. At some point, tall towers with an opening were at some point, tall towers with an opening at the top were constructed to funnel wind down into the base and blow cold air through the room. Food that needed to be preserved, like cheeses, fruits, or meat for a short time, would be placed around the ice and chilled by the Yakchal. Like I said, these weren't fully developed until the tail end of the Achaemenid period, but development must have started much earlier. That leaves us with, well, everything else. The little things that added flavor and variety to all of the aforementioned food. For some sweet flavor, you've got sugar and honey. Sugarcane has always been hard to grow, but the Persians knew how to extract sugar and could use it to sweeten their food, especially for sweet breads and cakes. Honey could be used in many of the same roles as sugar, but was more common and easily acquired despite the hazards involved in beekeeping. Honey could also be fermented and turned into mead as a drink. Mead, in fact, is one of the oldest fermented beverages we know of, with the earliest examples dating to China around 7,000 BC. For more complex flavors, various spices were employed by Persian cooks. Saffron and cumin were among the favorites, and the most expensive or prestigious. Sesame, parsley, mustard, anise, cardamom, and dill were also employed in dishes of all sorts to flavor and enhance Persian food alongside vegetables like onion or garlic. As with any time or place, the poorer you were, the fewer ingredients and special events you could obtain and use. And for the rich, more variety, complicated recipes, and expensive ingredients were available with hired cooks to prepare meals for them. The kings of kings, though, were on another level altogether. Herodotus suggests that some of the biggest feasts of the year would be in celebration of royal birthdays. The religious festivals and coronations would certainly draw similar, if not larger, celebrations, and they drew on all of the foods and ingredients I've talked about today. And no doubt, there are more that I couldn't think of and were not recorded by our Greco-Roman sources. If Assyrian comparisons are appropriate, the great king could hold feasts that entertained thousands or even tens of thousands. These would be festivals for a whole city or palace complex, not just dinners. The Persians were also pioneers in the idea of the culinary arts. The Greeks often remarked on how strange it was that the great kings employed people purely as chefs, whose job was to design and prepare new and creative dishes. Xenophon mentions cooks who specialized only in dairy-based dishes. If that's not an exaggeration, then we might imagine that the kings of kings employed specialty chefs to prepare and invent new dishes for the royal court. This was a complete novelty in much of the ancient world, and a luxury only really available to a king who controlled the greatest wealth in the world at that time. And controlling the greatest wealth in the world seems like an excellent stopping point for this episode, because it leads so perfectly back into the episode that I had originally planned for this week. Next week, you can look forward to a full tour of the Persian Empire, satrapy by satrapy, province by province, all the way from Egypt to India. Until then... You can get more information about me and the show at historyofpersiapodcast.com. There you can find the contact page if you want to get in touch with me, or you could just send me an email at historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com. You can also find maps, my bibliography, and the Achaemenid family tree up to the children of Darius. On social media, I'm at History of Persia on Twitter and the History of Persia podcast on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to support the show, you can find me on Patreon slash History of Persia. 
But the best way that you could possibly support the show is by sharing it with others. Tell people on social media, share my episodes there, tell your friends in person over holiday dinner. Anything that brings new listeners to the show is the best type of support that I can ask for. I also ask that if you're enjoying the show or you're excited for what comes next, leave a review on your podcast service of choice. iTunes and Stitcher in particular have some of the most robust review systems that I know about. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.